By God, I have had this Congress. For ten years, King George and his Parliament have gulled, cullied, and diddled these colonies. And still this Congress refuses to grant any of my proposals on independence, even so much as the courtesy of open debate. Good God, what in hell are they waiting for? Sit down, John! Sit down, John! John! Sit down! Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 4th, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hi. Good to see you. Haven't uh, you've made it through your evening full of blowing off M80s in front of your apartment? <laughs> Not guilty as charged. <laughs> All ten fingers. <laughs> All right. right. Also with this is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello, and I just want to say that I'm more of a sparklers kind of a guy. The sparklers. <laughs> when I was a kid, when I was a kid, that was all that our parents let us have sparklers. <laughs> uh, any uh, any Broadway shows that we know of that have fireworks in them? Well, in the Heights. Ah, you know? yeah. Uh, I, 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 I have since seen the movie, by the way, and um, like everybody else, I do feel it's too long, and um, I'm amazed at all the changes from the Broadway show. I mean, it's it really is a almost a completely different script, and I do think the choreography does get to seem um, a little uh, redundant as time goes on, but still, I think it's a very valuable movie and uh, a very entertaining one for most of the time, and I do get involved with the characters, and um, so... All in all, I liked it. Oh, good. Uh, Paul Witte points out that Ragtime has some fireworks in it as well. Yes. I, I know that um, in the Japanese production of The King and I that I saw back in the late 80s, early 90s, um, that there were fireworks in that production um, during, after the Small House of Uncle Thomas, before the end of the first, but I remember fireworks. It was, there was definitely a big effect of that. I wish I could remember exactly where they were, but I don't think that's true of any other King and I, right? I mean, you can't think of any other King and I where there were mm. fireworks, right? No. Oh, the movie of the Music Man has a little bit of fireworks. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh, but not the show, I think. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> has anybody read Don Mc Don McHugh's book on uh, Meredith Wilson? Oh, I'd Speaking love of? to. I'd love yeah, to. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. The Big Parade is called, and um, knowing Dominic's uh, pedigree and um, <laughs> and his brilliance, and <laughs> I'm sure it's terrific. Um, so he looks like he's 14 years old, but I'm telling you, he doesn't write that way at all. And Peter, didn't you write a book with a very similar title? Yeah, mine was called The Great Parade. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Different subjects. Well, yeah, because um, it was about the 63-64 season where we had um, a lot of musicals with parades in them before the right. parade passes by and dolly don't rain in my parade for funny girl there was a big parade that opened uh here's love a meredith wilson musical by the way um <clears throat> and anyone can whistle uh, um a parade in town so uh, that was enough to spur me to call the book the great parade especially considering that that was such an incredible season looking back on it now we were so lucky we didn't know it 
Hmm. Peter, uh, I, I think it was last week you kind of just mentioned in passing that you've have, you're you're working on a new book. You just sold a new book. What, can you tell us anything about it, or is it still in a quiet period? No, no, no. Um, it's called the Broadway Book of Disputes, Debates, and Disagreements, and um, it's it's it basically does that. I mean, who was the best Rose and Gypsy? Um, what original cast album would you love to have more than any other? Um, who, if there were a Mount Rushmore for musical theater, who would the four uh, people be carved in stone? Um, the hall of fame in baseball um, has a big issue when they put a, a person's plaque up. What cap will he wear? Um, if he played for different teams, you know, if Roger Clemens were to get in the Hall of Fame and a lot mm. of people don't think he will, including Roger Clemens, um, he would. Um, would he have a Yankees cap or would he have a Red Sox cap? Well, similarly speaking, if we had a Hall of Fame, I mean, we do have a Hall of Fame, but it's it's um, it just lists names. But if we had a Hall of Fame with plaques with, with well, what costumes would we have people in? Uh, would Ethel Merman be in the costume from Gypsy or any Get Your Gun or one of her other shows? Um, you know, so little questions like that. And um, so it's going to be fun because, as Ben Franklin says in 1776, (laughs) the things I write are only light extemporanea. And um, that's basically where I come from, too. Uh, Peter, I don't often get to ask you some baseball questions, but, uh, you know, if if Pete Rose were to get into the Hall of Fame, would he be wearing Golden Nugget or uh, the Mirage? (laughs) Very good point. Uh, I'm I'm of the camp that says Pete Rose should not be in the Hall of Fame, despite uh, being the all-time hit leader and what have you. By the way, my favorite quotation about Pete Rose comes from Pete Rose's ex-wife, because uh, she said the only book that Pete Rose has ever read is the Pete Rose story. So, (laughs) and said, (laughs) you know, and uh, I feel bad for that woman. I got to tell you, because um, he was, she was like his high school sweetheart. And then of course he dumped her. um, And uh, you could tell that she still loved him the time she was on TV and made that statement. But we're not here to talk about Pete Rose, are we? (laughs) We are not. So uh, Michael, you ventured off of the island to, of Manhattan to an, an adjacent island of Manhattan, <laughs> uh, to Roosevelt Island uh, in the middle of the East River. Uh, so tell us about your experience to see this Thornton Wild play. Yeah, Thornton Wilder. Um, it, it, uh, this was a production of the Magis Theater Company. I believe that's how it's pronounced, M-A-G-I-S. Um, and they did it at a place I've never been to before, uh, Four Freedoms State Park on Roosevelt Island, or or, excuse me, Franklin D. Roosevelt Four Freedoms State Park on Roosevelt Island. I believe that's the full title. It's a magnificent place. If you haven't been there, um, at one point, uh, right right near the site of the performance, there are these um, magnificent steps stone steps leading up to a to a landing and actually we sat on those steps for the performance and then in back of that is a huge lawn surrounded by trees i would say this lawn i'm bad at distances but i would say it's maybe two football fields wow <laughs> um hmm. and uh with trees all around it and then at the end there's a, a huge monument to roosevelt who certainly is one of my favorite presidents um mm-hmm. And uh, so it was great to be there, first of all. And I have to say, this company did an amazing job. Everyone was concerned about 
the um, the acoustics and whether they would be heard, especially because the the area where they performed was really almost completely open. There were three trees right in back of them, but they weren't very large trees and there was a lot of space between them. So it wasn't as if they acted as reflectors for the sound and the sides were completely open. And, and, uh, but I, I guess maybe just in some freakish way, um, it worked out the, that the acoustics are very good in that area. And plus I, I would say the cast did a very good job of projecting and also enunciating. So um, bravo to the cast. First of all, uh, Jean Castagnano, Russ Cusick, Margie Sharp Douglas, George Dronka, Jack Fadner, Kimberly Fadner, Jacqueline Lucid, Tony Macht. Um, I've seen him in a couple of things before. Rachel Benbow Murdy, Gabriel Portuando, May Roney, Diego Tapia, and Jenna Wyman. Uh, it really was a, a very interesting production of a, an extremely obscure play, I would say. Um, uh, let me just read from the press release. Uh, one of America's most lauded playwrights, Thornton Wilder's rarely performed play, The Alcestiad, premiered at the Edinburgh Festival in 1955, directed by Tyrone Guthrie, mm. and is inspired by Euripides' Greek tragedy Alcestis. Wilder's third act imagines a world where Alcestis returns from the land of the dead. Her kingdom is overthrown by a tyrant and is ravaged by a plague. It deals with the power of irrational fear in society at the hands of those who would seek to intimidate others brutally. In the same way that FDR's speech urges us to strive for freedom from fear, the play as a whole asks questions about the meaning of human life and its relationship to the divine. Um, I, uh, but I have to say, um, e- even those who who know Wilder's Wilder pretty well. Um, I, I think we would all agree that our town, for example, our town and the matchmaker and the skin of our teeth are all written in very different styles. So certainly uh, Wilder had a lot of versatility. But even knowing that, I would think if you saw this play, uh, you would never believe he wrote it. Mm. Um, it it's, it's really not very good. It's very, mm. very talky. Of course, it has its moments. And I could completely understand why it is so obscure uh, because because if it were better, I'm sure, <laughs> um, I'm sure it would be done more often. But I, I, I'm, I think it's fairly safe to assume that the Magus Theater Company uh, picked it because of, well, partly because of its obscurity, but also because of the theme and this uh, idea of a plague and emerging from a plague. So uh, you know, they thought that that was very germane to the the, the post-COVID or end of uh, near the end of covid uh time that we're in um uh so i i was very glad to see it and i made a point of of getting there because i thought when will i ever see this again <laughs> probably never um they, they did a very strong production of it as i say the the enunciation and the acoustics and the acting uh was was very very good and the staging so it only ran uh june 18th through the 20th um uh, and I, I, I regret that I forgot to speak about it last week, but even if I had remembered it, it still would have been after the fact. Um, but I, I didn't want to let it go without acknowledging the effort and how much I appreciated it and how glad I was to be there. 
the uh, press release for this uh, production uh, also states that it was uh, the Four Freedoms Park is in the shadow of our former smallpox hospital. Yes, which is right near it, and is um, it, it's 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 this beautiful kind of weird looking relic uh with, with you know how um how foliage starts to grow over the sides mm, of yeah. old buildings that are uh so it's very close to that um and uh and oh, oh by the way this was also my believe it or not my first time on the roosevelt island tram oh. which is an incredible experience <laughs> for for the price of a of a, of a subway fare you know yeah, yeah. So, uh, so please get there um, if you get a chance. It, it's really something. Michael, was the tram crowded? Uh, it wasn't too crowded uh, uh-huh. by the time we left, and and actually we took the subway there and the tram only one way back. Oh, I uh, see. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, Roosevelt Island has become uh, has become uh, they they've done some new buildings there, and it's become very. Uh, chic to live on roosevelt island and uh very expensive apartments as well really so, well, yeah, mean, um, yeah. analogous to manhattan oh yeah yeah oh yeah, really? yes wow. easily, yeah. easily. Wow. you know yeah just uh, a few hundred feet from manhattan with a little bit of a river there it, yeah. it's mm-hmm. uh it's making itself uh, exclusive <laughs> so i i tell you um hmm. peter last week we gave a preview of Seven Deadly Sins, and now you are able to review it. So tell us, what did you think of this production? Well, it's a lot of fun. Um, you do show up on uh, Gansport Street, 94 Gansport Street, and you won't be in a theater. You'll be on the street. They've uh, cordoned off the street, so no cars can come and uh, kill you. But um, you do walk uh, from there uh, to 13th Street for some of the show. But they're all in storefronts. Um, the uh, actors are behind glass. Every one of the shows has two people in it except for one, which is the one involving lust. That's kind of ironic, don't you think? I mean, because lust usually involves uh, more than one person. But <laughs> but nevertheless, um, it's, it's an astonishing <laughs> to watch the lust one. And I would love to know the background of Donna Carnow, who appears in the lust sequence, because she is a pole dancer. Um, and I'm telling you, the acrobatics she does with that pole make it very hard to believe that she just started doing this a few, um, with about two or three weeks of rehearsal. Um, I dare say that she um, must have had some experience on this pole before she um, did it because she is so extraordinary in what she does. The acrobatics are incredible. And what it really is, is a situation very much like Zip in uh, the musical <laughs> Pal Joey, where uh, you hear the, pri- the private thoughts of the person while she's doing this um, lusty type of performance that she's thinking about what she's going to do the rest of the day and how her life is impacted. So um, the plays are done by different playwrights, many of whom were brand new to me. Um, and um, so all, seven playwrights for seven plays for seven deadly sins, of course. And frankly, um, I had to say that so many of the uh, shows um, that dealt with certain themes seem to me 
to uh, <laughs> deal with the themes of other sins. Um, so, I mean, for example, there's one where a, a, a woman who wants desperately to have sex with her husband, and he's not the least bit interested because he's playing video games. And while this one isn't categorized under lust, I mean, it could have been because she was so lusty, and eventually he gets lusty too for a reason I won't disclose, um, which is um, at, at least, uh, well, I don't think X-rated is uh, unfortunately um, out of the question to uh, describe this, but um, the actors are all very good uh, and it's a nice experience. And I'm telling you on a night where it's hot, it's the breeze from the river is just heaven on earth and um, great fun. You know, for those of us who, who see a lot of theater, seeing something so atypical is always a treat um, to, to have a different experience from, you know, getting in, not that any of us have had so much experience in the last 15, 16 months of sitting down in the theater, but nevertheless, um, we, when we go to the theater, that's what usually happens. We go to a space, we sit in our assigned seats and we watch the show. Um, here you will have your choice of seats because there are uh, little folding chairs set up in the street and um, you can do that. And um, if you want to bring treats or anything with you, nobody's going to stop you um, from, from eating. Um, so um, you have to wear headphones, which are connected closed circuit. And you do have a, a person uh, guiding you around. Um, it's color coded um blue yellow etc you go with that group and you follow and um the person who uh takes you um uh, works very hard to uh, if mine was any indication works very hard to be witty and charming and uh, all that goes with that so um so um, if if we're talking about unique theatrical experiences which uh, show up in many awards um at the end of the season i think we have to include seven deadly sins is a unique theatrical experience and um and while the play is on top notch the experience itself is great fun hmm. another uh, uh another good uh venture out by tectonic theater project and moises kaufman uh they seem to bring us lots of different things over the years that That's true. are yeah this is the laramie just, project group yeah mm -hmm. yeah exactly mm -hmm. yeah all right, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes in case you want to check out Seven Diddly Sins and uh, get your tickets through Today Ticks uh, or check it out on their website. Um, our listeners have been busy in the chat here. Tony Janicki has brought us a few more plays that have fireworks in it. Do Re Mi. <laughs> Yes. And Holiday Inn. <laughs> I'm not sure that uh, Doremi has fireworks. There is a song, song called, called fireworks. fireworks, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't see the original production, uh, but um, perhaps there were some fireworks that they uh, replicated. Uh, well, all that that song means is love at first sight. So anyway. <laughs> uh, Holiday Inn and the film musical the bandwagon has fireworks in one musical number so uh those are are more things if you could think of other things uh, let us know um mm. so the reason for the fireworks is uh <laughs> mm. something happened a few years back in 1776 <laughs> uh and then after uh 1776 happened then uh Peter Stone got together with Sherman Edwards and uh, put this musical together called 1776. Now, it's always been, it's always a debate, is this a play with music or a, mu or a musical? So, Peter, what is your thought on the, on the controversy there? 
there's no question there are very few songs in 1776 compared to most other musicals. And um, <laughs> there, there were more, of course, uh, when they started out. Uh, there was even one called A Letter to from Silas Dean or to Silas Dean. I think it's from. Um, there was a song called Doozy Lamb um, that uh, I have heard and I think is quite terrible. But um, <laughs> it, it is a musical, uh, even though we have a 36-minute uh, sequence, um, I dare say we'll never see uh, eclipsed by any other musicals because we're in an era now where there's less book than usual in musicals. Uh, so, uh, it, sure, even though uh, the songs don't come uh, as quickly as they do in most other shows, the songs are definitely songs and their choice. And so um, it's perfectly fine. But um, the debate always comes up, of you know, would this have worked um, as a play and only a play without any music whatsoever? And it's always been curious to me that um, when I spoke to Peter Stone about it, he vehemently insisted that it had to be a musical. And that's really something coming from a book writer who, to my mind, uh, and to many others, wrote the greatest book in the history of musicals. Yes, I've seen Gypsy. Um, but the thing is that um, he had to take all these letters and congressional records and all this kind of stuff. Um, Sherman Edwards started the project and wanted to write book, music, and lyrics. And uh, unfortunately, he didn't um, get any interest of somebody really doing a production. Everybody said, you got to get a book writer. And it's very interesting it was Peter Stone, because at that point in time, Though Peter Stone had won an Oscar for a movie called Father Goose, and though he had won an Edgar Award, which is uh, given off a uh, name for Edgar Allan Poe for mysteries for his uh, musical char- uh, for his movie Charade, he hadn't had success with musicals. He had done Keen back in 1961, which, by the way, most people said would have been a hit if Alfred Drake hadn't got sick or well, drunk, uh, depending on who you talk to. Um, it's, it's supposedly it's a very good book. Um, and uh, he also did Skyscraper, which was not a success. Um, and so it wasn't as if they were going to the best book writer they could in Broadway history at that point in time. And uh, Peter Stone certainly had other successful musicals, um, success in the sense of that it, they made back their money. But nevertheless, uh, even when I spoke to him, um, he said, I'm only going to be remembered for 1776. Nobody's going to remember me for anything else. Hmm. And um, and it's it's understandable because he's the one who came up with the idea of saying this has to be like 12 angry men uh, that um, movie where indeed uh, one man uh, convinces everybody else to uh, vote with him. Um, so it had to be like that. And as Otis Guernsey said in the best plays of 1968, 69, uh, because 1776 was in 69, this was a story that you knew the ending when you went in, but by the time a half hour passed, you weren't so sure anymore. And um, my experience with the original production is kind of interesting because I didn't plan to see it. I don't mean I, I never planned to see it. But what had happened was I was coming to New York. Um, I was reviewing for Boston After Dark, the predecessor of the Boston Phoenix. And I was coming to town to review Gantry. Gantry was a musical of Elba Gantry. 
And I had tickets for the second performance because what had happened, um, Gantry didn't want to go out of town. They didn't want to spend the money. This is right around the time when people were saying, let's preview in New York. Let's not go out of town. It costs too much money to go out of town. And um, so musicals like Minnie's Boys and Look to the Lilies that season, Pearly, um, all that stuff um, stayed in town. And um, Gantry said, we're going to do something different. We're going to invite critics from uh, Philly, Boston, and Baltimore, and have them come to see our show and previews and give us advice. So I was one of the 12 critics selected. And, um, and then 11 of the critics said, are you crazy? We're not going to do that. Are you out of your mind? Um, because you won't come to our towns anymore. And I, when that, so they said, okay, we're taking back the invitation. And so as a result, um, I wrote a piece uh, for Boston After Dark saying, look, they're not going to come anyway. You know, they're just not. And it's turned out to be true. Tryouts in uh, cities are few and far between now. So anyway, they said, listen, you can't come to the opening night because we're sold out, but we'll let you come to the second performance. Well, there was no second performance of Gantry. So there I was in New York um, expecting to see a show. And I went to 1776 and what an experience it was. Now, this is 11 months into the run. I mean, you would think that some people would be on automatic pilot, but I truly believe to this day that William Daniels gave the greatest performance I have ever seen in a musical because he made you, he, he was just somebody who would not take no for an answer. It was just astonishing to watch him. Um, and there's a, there's a scene where he's not involved at, at all. He's not there. And um, <laughs> this is early in the show. And suddenly Where's that idiot Lee? He's supposed to, you know, be here uh, with the, and I mean, the way he came in with such force. I mean, this, this, the scene was getting a little sleepy and boy, he came in and energized it tremendously. And um, it, it was just amazing to watch him do it. And I really believed while I was watching that show that there was no United States of America. They were breaking the news to us as nicely as possible. And that would be in a musical. I mean, it just seemed impossible that, um, Pennsylvania was going to go along with this. Um, John Dickinson just was not going to go along with this. And that's all there was to it. So um, I'll stop now to get some perceptions from Michael, but um, I certainly will um, have more to say as time goes on, but it's time to give Michael a chance. <laughs> well, I'll start by saying I'm very excited. This is very exciting because I just remembered that I have photos of the production of 1776 that I was in in 1976. Wow. At, at Wagner College. Who were you? I was uh, Robert Livingston. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I've been presented with a new son by the noble stork. Mm -hmm. So I'm going home to celebrate and pop the cork with all the Livingstons together back in old New York. Mm -hmm. That was my line. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, <laughs> um, I uh, remember we they did an extended run of the show because of the it was the bicentennial year and they thought that it would get a lot of audiences and and they did I think they did outreach to high schools and places like that um, to come see the show and uh, it was a very good production overall I think um, and I was very happy to be part of it that was the only production of it that I that I was ever actually in. And then uh, I, yeah, it, it was it was really great to to be in it. I, it's it's such a magnificent piece. I would say it's unquestionably a musical, even though it does have fewer songs than than most other shows and more book. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I uh, I was very happy just very recently to come across. Uh, a copy, a digital copy of the original London cast album. 
which I knew existed, but I don't think I had ever heard it before. And, you know, it's really quite good. <laughs> and you also get the, um, the reprise of uh, yours, yours, yours on that album as well. Um, uh, which is nice to have that extra. It's funny to hear uh, Louis Fiander say, are you a patriot or a lover, you know, as opposed to patriot? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, um, now, now where do, by the reprise of yours, 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 do you mean that compliments song? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Broadway radio is being brought to you by audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment. At Audible, you can find the largest selection of audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and more like original entertainment from top celebrity creators and thousands of popular and binge-worthy podcasts. Our newest plan, Audible Plus, gives you full access to our Popular Plus catalog, you can listen all you want to thousands and thousands of popular audiobooks, original entertainment, and podcasts, including ad-free versions of your favorite shows and exclusive series. There is quite a collection of Broadway-related spoken word entertainment for you to check out. A few recommendations to start with are A Wonderful Guy, Conversations of the Great Men of Musical Theater by Eddie Shapiro, My Broken Language by Chiara Alegria Hudes, Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, and Mike Nichols' A Life by Mark Harris. All are available to download and stream so you can listen anywhere on any device. New members can always try Audible Plus for 30 days on us. With an Audible Plus membership, you can get full access to the Plus catalog. It's filled with thousands of titles across different formats and genres, from audiobooks to popular and exclusive podcasts to unique Audible originals like Words and Music series. You can download or stream without limit, and you can listen offline anytime, anywhere. Visit audible.com slash Broadway Radio or text Broadway Radio to 500-500. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash Broadway Radio. And Broadway Radio is one word. Or text Broadway Radio, one word again, to 500-500. We'd like to thank Audible for continuing to sponsor Broadway Radio. Peter, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. G- given that this was... Uh, you know, from 1776, wouldn't you think that the original founding fathers would have an English accent? Yes, um, in a sense, I've often wondered about that, but um, I'm, I'm not sure if they were easily assimilated or what. But, uh, <laughs> one would think that that would be the case. Yeah, uh, or at least some of them would, but that didn't happen. Uh, no, for better or worse, it just didn't. I didn't. I never asked Peter Stone about that. But, I never um, noticed English accidents in Hamilton. So, yeah, mm-hmm. indeed. <laughs> no, well, that's similarities. <laughs> no, 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 that's an interesting point. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I think in, in the movie, for example, I would say that William Daniels and several of the others do a mid Atlantic accent, which is probably maybe also um, maybe accurate. Maybe it had already begun to change for a lot of people. And so they didn't sound completely British. 
but <laughs> they didn't certainly didn't sound like modern day Americans talk either. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but that's one of the great things about this, especially the, the opening chorus. You know, it, it's 90 degrees. Have mercy, John, please. It's hot <laughs> as hell in Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, but it sounds what the, the sound of the recording is great. And the orchestrations are the originals, uh, maybe sounding even a little better than on the original cast album, just because of the way they're mixed and and miked um and a very strong cast overall uh with one one exception for me uh this woman who plays abigail adams vivian ross um i hate to say it but she really is not very good at all Uh, she's even off pitch uh in a few places i i would say um most of the names you would probably not recognize, I think, uh, mm. um, or at least I didn't. No, I don't either. But Lewis Flander, who played Adams, I looked him up and he had quite a lot of credits uh, in TV and film. He was in I and Albert, if you saw oh. No, yeah, I know that's the Strauss and Adams show about Queen Victoria. Yeah, and he and and additionally a lot of uh, film and TV, as I said. Um, probably the most, the two most famous names are uh, David Kernan, mm-hmm. who who plays Rutledge and sings Molasses to Rum very, very powerfully, uh, and then also uh, uh, Martha Jefferson is Cheryl Kennedy who is probably best known because she was to have been Eliza in one of the uh, My Fair Lady revivals with Rex Harrison. Uh, but, uh, I, I guess she wound up doing it at least for some of the time, but she, but she also wound up with vocal problems and then she had to eventually drop out and somebody else took over. Uh, but I, I really like her performance of he plays the violin uh, and I, I, I think you will too. Um, if you can, if you can seek this out, it's it's not as hard to find as I thought <laughs> thought it might be. Uh, you know, oh, uh, but there was a time. <laughs> yes, believe me, I'll never forget when Frank Basile, yeah. not Celeste Holmes' husband, but oh. Frank Basile, who runs a, 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 an organization called Fresh Produce that does commercials, called me up and said, um, "Do you have the London Cast album, seventeen seventy six?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "The London Cast album." I said, "Yeah." <laughs> not the. <laughs> American album. No, the London cast. Yeah. The one that they did in London. Yeah. Yeah. I have that. All right. I mean, we're talking about we're not talking about the one William Daniels. No, no. The London cast because it's awfully rare. I know it is, but I have it. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it was just incredible. But it, there was a time. And of course, a lot of it had to do with the fact that, of course, the show didn't run very long in London. And why would it? I mean, it's just so bizarre to me. It's so interesting to me. The Stuart Ostro. Uh, who produced it on Broadway, did not produce it in London. And wouldn't you know, Alexander H. Cohen, who made so many uh, missteps during his career, decided he would do it there. Mm. But I mean, um, you know, the show has lyrics with uh, To Hell With Great Britain. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just uh, Fat King George. I mean, all that kind of stuff. It's just amazing that anybody would think that this would fly in in London. And um, I may be wrong about 49 performances, but that's what I seem to remember. But whatever the case, it was certainly not a success there um, and uh, certainly uh, had to uh, close very, very quickly, comparatively speaking to the I think it's 1217 for um, for Broadway, mm-hmm. um, which was a long run in those days. You know, so um, and uh, the irony is, you know, David Merrick that season produced Promises, Promises, and that was a big hit and would even, by the way, run longer than 1776. 
And yeah, everybody thought when Tony time was approaching, it was going to be a shoe in. I mean, 1776 opened a day before the deadline. And um, here it was um, a month before it opened in New Haven uh, in terrible, terrible shape with that doozy lamb song in it, by the way, uh, that doozy lamb song, may I ex- explain, um, was there is a line in um, the show that we know now about uh, we're going to go to New Brunswick um, and see how the guys are doing there. Uh, the, the, the army is doing. So actually there was a scene in New Brunswick right. where um, in fact, Stephen Schwartz's wife um, was playing um, a prostitute. And the point was that Ben Franklin, who was a Randy guy, wanted to um, have somebody for the night. And um, in those days you could actually rent a hotel room and in room really um, where you would sleep in the same bed as another person, a stranger, but you would have a, a literally a board that would be between um, the mattress. And so that was your privacy. And so uh, Ben Franklin wanted to do it with a prostitute while William Daniels was in the same bed, but separated by a board and <laughs> doozy lamb is what um, uh, Ben Franklin called the prostitute. Well, anyway, um, not only was it uh, uh, in terrible shape, but also the point was that um there was a terrible snowstorm and the critics couldn't come and nobody could come and they had no audience to speak of and all the goes. This is only a month before, literally four weeks before they opened on Broadway. And I mean, the word on this show was just dire. Nobody thought it was going to amount to anything to begin with. And who was William Daniels? I mean, he was a, a minor player up to that point. Um, he's Benjamin Braddock's father in the movie The Graduate. But I mean, he, was, he wasn't famous and got b- billed below the title, which of course caused a, a stink a little later on, which I'm sure Michael will tell us about. But <laughs> the thing is that, yeah, it, w- it was just considered to be such a loser. And uh, and suddenly there the night before the Tonys. I mean, I will never forget as long as I live when I still pass it on Massachusetts Avenue in Boston. Um, I was going to see a show at the theater company of Boston and there was a little drugstore next door, which had the New York papers. And um, I opened the tabloids first because they're easier to get into. And I'm expecting terrible reviews and, and there's a good review in the post and there's a good review in the news. And so I dared to open up the times and there's a, rave from clive barnes as well who said it should run till 1976 it did not but that's what he um fully i couldn't believe what i was reading i mean this was a show that was supposed to be such a stinker and then with the tonys um you know i was rooting for promises promises which i had seen in the boston tryout and was flabbergasted when indeed um not just that it it won for um best musical but even before that when it won for best direction and i just and ron holgate winning uh, the award that William Daniels could have won should he had made that decision to stay in the race. Michael, tell us about that. Oh, well, I, I, I don't have much to say other than that he was nominated for supporting or featured actor, whatever it was called then, and declined the nomination because it's ridiculous to think of <laughs> it as a supporting or featured role. I'll say. No. Yeah. And, you know, he could have had the Tony very easily. Um, if he I distinctly right remember... Um, Read. I distinctly remember reading that review in the New York Times in my uh, junior high school history class. Wow. And then they place to do it. Yes. (laughs) And then they organized a theater party to go see it. And for whatever reason, I could not or did not go. Wow. So alas, I never saw that that legendary original production. Wow. Oh, that's too bad. 
But wow. all the more reason why, I, as I've said frequently, I, I think that movie is almost a miracle. It's so well done. And the fact that all of those people from either the original cast or uh, their replacements uh, are, are in it is it, just every time I see it, I almost can't believe it that it ever happened. So uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda interviewed William Daniels right, uh, for City Center, and they talked about the casting of the movie, mm. uh, and uh, William Daniels uh, said that they, they wanted just to pick up the entire production, or the whole cast and everything, and... Uh, and make the film out of it. And, uh, and so he said, I came pretty late to 70, uh, 1776. Uh, Lin-Manuel said, I came pretty late to 1776, probably college. I fell in love with the movie and that's a singular, it's a singular movie because I had the incredible original cast doing this thing. It's very rare. Can you tell us a little bit about that opportunity? And Daniel said, that was Jack Warner. He said, Mm -hmm. he saw the show and said, I want the whole cast uh, I think it was a cheap way to go. Also, he <laughs> felt that. Also, he felt he had made a mistake using Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady instead ah. of sticking with Julie Andrews. <laughs> so, ah, uh, interesting. very interesting. Yeah. But on that note, uh, th- there's a little more to this story. Uh, he, he apparently considered Tammy Grimes for Abigail Adams, uh, but then the story goes. It's a wonderful story that he saw. Virginia Vestoff's screen test and said, I don't think we'll do that. I think we'll go with Miss Vestoff. <laughs> How nice. They're wonderful. Yeah. How nice. You know, the, uh, while the movie is wonderful, um, it, it does lack um, what you have on stage that you really, really need to appreciate what's going on. And that is, the day-by-day calendar mm. to find out when, how close are we to July 4th, um, as well as the scoreboard telling us how many colonies are for independence, how many are against, and how many are abstaining. Um, because it is miraculous when you are sitting there, and it's June 28th, and six are for, and six are against, and one is abstaining. And the point is, you know that in six days it's going to be solved. But how can it be solved? You know, with so many people, it's got to be unanimous. How could it possibly be? And the point is, you don't get that suspense in the movie because you need to check in whenever you need to check in to find out, wait a minute, what day is it? Wait a minute, how many are for or against? And on stage, of course, it's always there. I wish that there were a way, since the movie is letterboxed on the DVD, (laughs) that in that black space below, they could have yay, nay, and the date um, and telling you exactly, because that would make the movie so much better. It is true, every now and then you do see somebody tear a page off the calendar, and um, but it's not the same. You have to keep that in your mind, and there's so much else going on, especially with the great dialogue. Um, And what's really wonderful about 1776 is that um, Peter Stone did not make John Dickinson, the man who was really against American independence, stupid, fat, lisping, um, a caricature. No. What's so wonderful is that he had him come up with good reasons why we shouldn't break from England. Oh, Mr. Adams, you know, you expect us to go with you when you abandon the Magna Carta, um, Hastings, et cetera. And you mm. say, gee, you know, he's right. You know, <laughs> oh, sure. We're going to break away. We have no army. We have no money. We have no European allies, you know, and you say, 
he's he's right. He's right. You know, so uh, the point is, um, as every dramatist should do, if you're ever in a, a situation where your two characters are arguing, don't make the one you don't want to win stupid right. or fat or lisping. Give him the best possible reasons why, indeed, he's right. And so that's very effective. Another effective thing that's so smart is the fact that in the opening scene, you do not see Ben Franklin. Now, if indeed you saw Ben Franklin, who is we we have a vision in our head of what he looks like. Some of us, not all of us, know what he looks like from hundred dollar bills. Um, but there has been enough um, Ben Franklin in uh, here and there that we know what Ben Franklin looks like. And if indeed he were in that opening number, he would pull focus. What I do find interesting is when they did sit down, John, in the on the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, they put Ben Franklin in it. But nevertheless, in the musical itself, he only starts to appear as the lights come up on scene two in. Um, and it's so great because the audience gurgles with pleasure at seeing Ben Franklin. They know who he is, <laughs> but it would have been a terrible thing to do. Um, the other thing about Ben Franklin is that. Um, Peter Stone did not make the mistake that Jerome, well, not, uh, I shouldn't put it on him, that the songwriters who wrote Baker Street uh, did with Sherlock Holmes. Now, here's Sherlock Holmes, who is very famous for saying elementary, my dear Watson. And in the very first song, there he is saying elementary. Now, similarly speaking, in Annie, a lesser writer would have had Annie say leaping lizards as her first line. Mm -hmm. And notice that Tom Meehan saved it. You know, a musical is a marathon. Mm. You have a long way to travel, you know, save things for later. Don't give it away right away. And similarly speaking, here's Ben Franklin, who is famous for saying witty things. Okay. A lesser writer would have had him say one of his famous lines right away. Um, you know, uh, wine is uh, proof that God loves us, you know, that um, um, constant and loves um, uh, 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 penny saved as a penny earned. Honesty is the best policy. Mm. Um, a lesser writer would put one of those in right away. And instead, what Peter Stone does is have um, Franklin make a witty remark about treason to which um, John Adams says, I have better things to do than to hear you quote yourself. And Ben Franklin says, no, that was a new one. Now that's a good joke. And indeed it also <laughs> diffuses that uh, possibility of uh, having him quote something famous right away. Later, he does come off with um, never put off with tomorrow, what you can do. And, Adams interrupts us and says, shut up, you know, because they have other things to do. <laughs> so now, again, you're teasing the fact that that's happening and not until late in the show, late, late, late. Does he say if we do not all hang all together, we sh so shall hang separately. Mm. Um, and at that point, you're so engrossed in what's going on. You say, ah, oh, is that where that quote came from? Oh, wow. You know, and again, if he had said something like that earlier, you would just roll your eyes and groan the way we all did when we saw Baker Street and uh, heard elementary right at the beginning. Save it for later. You know, and um, so that's a smart thing that um, that was done in 1776. I completely agree with all of that. Um, uh, that said, uh, I, I would say, uh, and I've mentioned this before when we've, when we've discussed 1776, that the real John Dickinson, I suppose, um, the show is somewhat unfair to him because uh, the real one was not, was, had a much more nuanced, um, view of of the situation than is what is presented in the musical so you might want to read up on on the real person uh 
and and I completely understand, you know, why yeah, he needed you to, have be, to have a villain, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I, I com- thoroughly, completely understand that. But just in terms of sheer historical accuracy, which of course it's not a documentary, so it's not, you know, what's meant to be. But uh, that is something I wanted to mention. By the way, um, I found uh, on YouTube a, a clip of. Uh, of William Daniels and Virginia Vestoff doing um, till then on the 1971 Tony, oh, yeah, Award, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was the year where they, where they celebrated the 25th year of the Tonys and they brought all the original people back to do their numbers. Of course, at that point, 1776 was only two years old. Um, and uh, so that was, it's really interesting for those of us who know the movie so well to see uh, this live performance on the Tony Awards and to see how uh, how great the actors were at calibrating and recalibrating their performances for the stage and for film. Uh, Virginia Vestoff is much um, more uh, well. It's mu- it's a much more uh, larger, uh, I mean, well, just projecting to the audience for one thing. Uh, And both of them are. It's uh, Whereas in the movie, they're able to do all those lines before the song very, very intimately. Um, John, uh, as long as you were sending for wives, why why didn't you send Mm -hmm. for your own? Please, uh, please, Abigail, please come to Philadelphia. Please come. Um, And, and, you know, but but in this clip, um, they do it you know, they're on stage and they have to project to a theater. So they do it very differently. And uh, it's a shock, I guess, when you first hear it, if, if you're aware of the movie. But but of course, it's it's what they had to do. And it's equally valid for for a stage performance. Also, it's interesting that um, I, I, I would say that William Dan- Daniels looks almost exactly the same as he looks in the film. But Virginia Vesta looks quite different uh, because of makeup. And also, I think it seems like she's wearing a wig, maybe. Whereas I think in the movie, it's her real hair. It certainly looks like it. Mm-hmm. So um, check out that clip. And, and it's quite a treasure, I would say. You know, going back to what you were saying about uh, the uh, historical accuracy, mm. Dickinson, that brings me to uh, my buddy, William Martin, uh, who's a historical novelist. Um, he's written a lot about that period. He wrote a book called Harvard Yard, which um, talks about the rebellion um, in April of 1775, uh, when the British relief column marched through Harvard Square, and a book called The Lost Constitution, which investigated Shays Rebellion, the direct result of the central government derived from the Articles of Confederation and thereby the uh, Constitutional Convention and City of Dreams, which is about um, New York City's role in the American Revolution. But um, Citizen Washington is the one that really deals with this period of time uh, for obvious reason. Um, And um, Bill Martin tells me that uh, the line that we hear deep in 1776 um, what brave men I shall lose before this business ends, which uh, Secretary Charles Thompson reads that chilling prediction to the congressman of the brand new United States of America, only moments after they'd ratified the declaration. You know, again, one of the great things in musicals, the moment of elation is always followed, not always, but should be followed by, you know, a devastating thing. Here they are saying, okay, we're breaking away. That's it. It's official. And in comes the dispatch from Washington saying um, it's hopeless. You know, and um, but they stay with it. But anyway, that brave man I shall lose before this business ends is something that indeed 
uh, George Washington wrote, but it was actually written in August of 1776 at the Battle of Long Island. So mm. uh, Bill Martin also claims that Richard Henry Lee was not the garrulous, happy-go-lucky, egomaniacal punster that he's shown to be in the show. And he's not the only one who thinks so. Uh, he tells me that uh, uh, Thomas Fleming, who's one of our best historical novelists, wrote that Lee was tall, austere, tight-lipped, no-nonsense, Southern Puritan, and the most powerful orator in Congress next to John uh, Adams. Hmm. And, um, and, and, well, Adams did dislike Lee. Um, uh, Bill Martin says, well, um, I, I don't know that for sure, but John was a man of strong opinions and didn't like very many people. Even Ben Franklin, he didn't <laughs> like, you know, so. And the idea of getting Martha Jefferson to Philadelphia also uh, was uh, spurious that, because Martha was very ill. Um, and, you know, she certainly didn't serve. Um, I don't know if I don't remember if she didn't serve long as first lady or she was never first lady that she had died by the time Jefferson became our third president. Uh, but the first lady was um, his daughter, I believe, during that period of time. But uh, Martha was really ill and she couldn't have traveled there and um, and certainly wouldn't have had the energy to sing about his playing the violin. So um, Bill says that she was actually too sick and depressed at that point in time to even write a letter. So um and um, he also took issue with the fact that um, the line, the South speaks with one voice. And he says, no, um, you know, a third of the people are on the right, a third on the left, a third in the middle. You know, um, he says, just like today. So. Um, so anyway, um, it, it's fun to talk to a, a, a historian on uh, how accurate it is. But uh, yes, just as I mentioned earlier, that Kurt Vonnegut wrote, God never wrote a good play in his life. You know, if you're going to have some sort of drama, you, you have to have that. Um, but um, Peter Stone, in his afterward in the published edition of 1776, does say people are always asking me, is it true? And he says, yes. And to a degree, it is. I mean, the idea of uh, Wilson being the one to swing the vote, um, mm. while nobody really knows that for sure, the point is that he did notice that uh, when he looked through everybody's vote, that Wilson changed his vote at the last minute. And that's why he had him be the one to be uh, the pivotal person who changes his vote. So um, so that's kind of interesting as well. So Martha Jeff. I was just going to say, uh, Martha Jefferson, um, during the play, does she get on a big tire and go up through the roof when she passes away? <laughs> <laughs> so I joke because uh, Betty Buckley, uh, sure, this was right. her Broadway debut uh, in 1776. And uh, just as a little side trivia, yesterday was her birthday. Indeed. And and uh, Betty did tell me that uh, she really thought she was going to be fired after the first performance in New Haven. She said... I just overdid my makeup and I came out looking more like a native American than, uh, you know, I'm supposed <laughs> to be this breath of fresh air. And I came in and I was nervous. I mean, cause you know, this was her first job in the city. Um, well, um, <laughs> the city of new Haven in New York for that matter, <laughs> but, uh, and Washington too. But, um, she said, I, I just, I, I, I just overdid it. Uh, looking in the mirror, I, I just felt I don't have enough. I don't have enough. And, um, and uh, people were stunned when I came out looking uh, frightful um, in comparison to so many others on stage. So um, she swore she, this was it. Um, you know, especially when you're doing your first show, you really do believe that you could do anything wrong. And, um, and she really felt she did. James, were you ever in a production of 1776? No, no, I've never oh. done it. You would have been a great courier. 
Oh, thank you. I, I can see you in it too. I agree. I agree. Uh, so uh, it's too bad. Um, but, uh, you know, and of course, it's very interesting how so many productions, 1776 now, um, are, don't, don't stick to the original template in terms of casting. And um, many moons ago, I went out to Kansas City. I was invited by Keith Edwards, who's Sherman Edwards' son, who oh. said, you've been so good to my father's show. Oh, by the way, he said, uh, he was a teenager when um, it opened. And he said to me, when we sat down for dinner for a solid week after the show opened, we didn't eat until my father read all of those three reviews from the main news <laughs> newspapers. <laughs> he read that they were only after that. We could we eat because this thing was so long in the making. I mean, today, <laughs> of course, we expect shows to take forever to get on. But this one took like about seven years. And, you know, for seven years, they were hearing it was going to happen. I mean, Sherman Edwards was a substitute teacher. Um, and that's where he got involved in history. And oh, he was a songwriter uh, of some note. I mean, he did write See You in September, uh, which was a pop hit at the time and wonderful wonderful which was a big hit for johnny mathis but uh the thing was you know he did have this goal of doing this musical and um anyway keith edwards his son said you've been so good to my daddy's show that i want to i want you to come up and see what we're doing out here in kansas city where we're doing it all female and the thing about it that was so smart was that it was done as a concert presentation so Everybody was in uh, black tuxedo type sh um, clothes and uh, they were all at music stands and um, they all wore scarves of different, uh, I think it was red and white. And um, whenever one switched um, allegiances, they switched the, um, the uh, color of the scarf. And as a result, you could tell how many were for and how many were against independence under those circumstances. So, um, but a lot of that has happened since then. I, that wasn't the first, I don't think it was the first production I was offered that was um, all women. I, maybe I'm wrong, but there was one at some New England college I was invited to and I couldn't get to. But uh, since then, um, people have played uh, fast and loose with the casting. And of course, we would have seen a production by now had there been no pandemic where there was going to be um, at least women in it, um, or was it all women, or was it all? Uh, they, the way that they've described the American Repertory Theater Diane Paula's production, about, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, they didn't call it an all women production as uh -huh. much as no men. So it was it was a, a, a cast full of people who never who have not identified as male. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. And so uh, and we still are on track to see that possibly right. in 2022 or so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it does seem like uh, it is still uh, going to happen um, on Broadway. So uh, and I, and when it comes around to the ART production. Uh, I think that I, I'm going to get up uh, to Cambridge to go see that. Yeah, I, I, as, as a former Bostonian, I love going back. So uh, that's definitely a good reason to do so. I saw a high school production in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, and then it was taken to the International Thespian Festival in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, that used uh, many women in the cast, not all. Uh, ben Franklin was played by a, a, a boy, but um, but it worked very, very well. I mean, I, you know, I, this book is so strong that you just get carried into it. And after all, you even forget um, the, the sexes of the people who are playing it. I mean, you just you're just so interested in what's being said. You don't care who's saying it. So um, and that's really quite a miracle miraculous thing i didn't think i'd feel that way when i went out to kansas city to see uh, that all-female production but again th these words resonate so well so well 
that uh, it's impossible not to be taken with it. And by the way, Peter Stone also says something very interesting. He says during the first part of the show, about the first half of it, there's a lot of joking around. There's a lot of fun. You know, there are a, a, a lot of funny lines and what have you. And the jokes are really good ones. He said, but once they actually start dealing with the declaration itself, that's when the jokes disappear. You don't get one until John Hancock has a wonderful one after he has signed the declaration and the courier comes in with the bad news. And um, <laughs> and he says uh, something to the effect of, uh, you know, if if we if, if they break in right now and we're all arrested, mine's the only name on this damn thing. You know, <laughs> so uh, <and> it's <laughs> a great line um, and it's a good point. But um, Peter Stone said once they start debating, that's where the jokes disappeared. And, you know, it's a, it, it's really true of so many serious dramas. I'm thinking of Beckett. I don't mean Samuel Beckett. I mean, the play Beckett by Jean Anouy, uh, which, you know, does deal with uh, somebody's execution. And yet the first part of it is very funny. Mm. You know, so many times you get dramas that are very funny at the beginning and then they get serious. They know they have to get serious, but they they lull you into thinking it's going to be fun and games. And then it's not. Uh, things can turn serious on a dime and they do in 1776 too. So of course, one of the the best things about the book, I think we can all agree is that from the beginning, it establishes that these were actual human beings, Mm -hmm. uh, not demigods Mm -hmm. as uh, Franklin Franklin says says, says, later on, Mm -hmm. you know, even that, that line you referenced earlier where, uh, Adams comes in and says, where's that idiot Lee? Mm, you know, mm, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, one of my favorite lines comes at the very end where uh, Franklin and and Adams are having a huge disagreement and and uh, Franklin really cuts him down. And then he says something like, stop acting like a Boston fishwife, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and it just makes it, uh, you know, it's, it's so refreshing to, <laughs> to hear them talk like real people. Oh, yeah. And Peter Stone says that's what really did it for him. You know, when he was asked to uh, consider it, he said, no, I'm not I'm not taking this meeting. Are you crazy? I mean, a musical about the Declaration of Independence. Leave me alone. But they kept on coming back to him and finally. All right. All right. All right. I'll go. And he said, as soon as he heard, sit down, John, which you don't expect to hear. Mm. The people are against John Adams. He said, whoa, I see what this guy is doing. This is good. This is really good. And um, and that certainly was the significant thing that made him um, sign on that. uh, Indeed, they did see them as real people, which indeed they were. So. (laughs) So any uh, last thoughts about 1776 before we wrap for the morning? Oh, I think we've pretty much covered it, don't you? Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm sure things will occur to us as time goes on. But nevertheless, um, uh, it, it, uh, Turner Classic Movies tonight at 1015 is showing it if you don't own it in your own home. Though I suspect many of the people who are listening here do have a copy of it. Mm-hmm. But it is always fun to take it out on July 4th and uh, and reminisce and uh, and see it. Um, it. Uh, uh, it's too bad that um, the Laserdisc version, which really has everything, um, was not made available for the DVD. There are still some cuts. You can tell that right away in Piddle, Twiddle, and Resolve. Uh, Adam's number is not complete on the DVD, but it is on the Laserdisc. Yeah, but Peter, that's been a... Peter, that's been rectified. Has it? Oh, yeah. good. Oh, I'm yeah. glad. If, if you oh. get it on Blu-ray. Uh, oh, is that right? Oh, I'm yeah, so yeah, glad yeah. you told me. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. the Piddle, Twiddle, and Resolve is there. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Thank you. 
<laughs> uh, at least in one version. I think that might be. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> uh, my final thought is I, I love it that, uh, that Edwards and Stone made such a big point of the slavery issue mm. in the show. I don't know about you guys, but when I learned about the revolution as a child, I don't think they really <laughs> mm. I don't think they really focused on that. I don't think that they that they told us that it was such a huge sticking point that it almost you know kind of wrecked the whole thing. Uh and of course it's the uh um as slavery has been called the original sin yeah. mm-hmm. of this country and and it's still I mean as it was at the time uh slavery had already existed for more than 150 years so uh but at least if they had stopped it then you know with with the actual establishment of the new country we would have had that much more time um you know to work to at reparations uh and we didn't and look where we are now well, um, if, after saying that, I think we've covered everything uh, here. I am remembering that Peter Stone said uh, that he had to take out something that was actually historically accurate because audiences wouldn't have believed it mm-hmm. because um, at, at one point Adams is wants that um, slavery clause in the declaration that these men are going to be free. They are, they are people being treated as property and he, he wants it stopped. Right. And, um, and Ben Franklin knows that they're not going to ratify the declaration unless they give in on that point. But um, Adam says, Mark E. Franklin, if we give in on this issue, history will never forget us, forgive us. And the actual line said in 1776 was there will be trouble a hundred years hence. Um, and as Peter Stone says he only missed it by a few years when you come right down to it because there was yeah. trouble uh, within a hundred years. And he said, but I, I just think audiences would think they were saying, Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, um, you're predicting the civil war, you know, so he felt he had to leave it out, even though that was actually said back then. Hmm. All right. So uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners. If you have any uh, thoughts or questions or uh, points of view on 1776, let us know. And I guess we'll wrap it up for today. So before we head on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by listening, by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded automatically for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. Uh, Stitcher plays us. iHeartRadio plays iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Google Play, all the different places that you can get podcasts, you can get Broadway Ratings offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me can be found in the show notes at Broadway Radio, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? This beloved three-time Tony-nominated musical performer married a man whose last name was the same as the first name of the town in which she was born. The marriage didn't last. The town has. Who was she and he? Julie Andrews, a nominee for My Fair Lady, Camelot, Victor Victoria, whether she wanted it or not, uh, was born on Walton on Thames and was once married to Tony Walton. So Paul Whitty was the first to get it, followed by Tony Janicki, Brigadude, Donna Hatton, Mike Meany, Fred Abramowitz, and Ingrid Gammerman. This week's question deals with 1776. In this musical, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Ben Franklin are shown to be the men who were most responsible for making the United States of America. But there was another award-winning property, 
I'm not saying if it was a novel, a historical novel, a, a nonfiction book, a film, a TV show, a poem, a haiku. I'm not giving that away. But anyway, there was another award-winning property done a few decades earlier that gives most of the credit to Caesar Rodney of Delaware. Mm. What's the name of that property and what award did it win? Hmm. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, there are so many possible choices for a musical moment in a show devoted to 1776. Uh, and it was hard for me to choose one, but I decided to go with Lewis Flanders' performance of Is Anybody There from mm. the London cast album. Uh, for several reasons. The, that's the London cast, not the one with William Daniels in it, is it? <laughs> you know, okay. you, uh, it's really the London cast. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not getting the joke. Oh, oh, because, because um, Peter I'm, had. I was yeah. telling the story about Frank Basile. It's London Cast album. <laughs> oh, 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 oh <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that really is the London Cast, which, really? um, if I understand correctly, was never officially on CD, but right. uh, even now is available as a CDR through Footlight uh, uh, um, online. I, I would say it's probably not 100% legal, but on the other hand, you know, if it's if it was never made available to people and that's the only way they can get it, maybe that's not such an awful thing. Uh, or you can probably get it as a download as well. Anyway, I think it's a really wonderful performance of a great song and uh, and a song which there again, at the very end of the show, um, there's still stressing the slavery thing, uh, you know, without coming right out and saying it, because Adam sings, I see Americans, all Americans free forevermore. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I love it. Uh, and I think it's appropriate that it ends with that very quiet moment where mm -hmm. Adam sings and then speaks. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does anybody see what I see? Uh, you know, I, I think America is still very much a work in progress. Mm, I, I mm, think we would all mm, agree with that. Mm. And so um, it's, it's really wonderful to always go back and look at this magnificent musical uh, that that deals with all of these issues, which we're still we're still very much confronting today. Okay, so on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Still to England I say good night forever, good night. For I have crossed the Rubicon. Let the bridge be burned behind me, come. What may come, what may commitment. The croakers all say will rule the day. They'll be held to pay in fiery purgatory. Through all the gloom, through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. Pageant and pump and parade I hear the 
bells ringing out. I hear the cannons roar. I see Americans, all Americans free. chamber is how silent how silent the chamber is is anybody there does anybody care Does anybody see what I see? 